When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Attention BetMGM customers. Have a friend who loves sports as much as you do? Here's a chance for both of you to earn a $50 bonus when they sign up through BetMGM's Refer-A-Friend program. Just sign into your BetMGM account and click on the Refer-A-Friend program to send your friend a message inviting them to register a new account in the same state you use BetMGM in. Once your friend signs up and makes a deposit, they'll receive a $50 bonus. And once your friend places a bet with their bonus and the wager is settled, you'll receive a $50 bonus as well. Share the excitement and get a $50 bonus every time you refer a friend to BetMGM. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Ohio only. New and existing customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets. Bonus bets expire in 30 days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X5 gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. At Lowe's, we're your go-to for great gardening values every day. That's why we've lowered our price on select bagged mulch, now starting at just $2.88 a bag. Mulch helps prevent weeds and retains moisture. And when you put it down around trees, shrubs, and flower beds, you'll see how beautiful it makes your outdoor space. Just in time to welcome back family and friends. Shop online and pick up in-store. Lowe's, home to the best part of summer. Selection and product availability vary by location. While supplies last, U.S. only. Excludes Alaska and Hawaii. It's uh, film study as we're going to look back on one last game for this season. Tim McCusick, how are you doing? Life's good, Josh, although sometimes it's hard to remember that. I, I see. I was wondering if you were going to come out with the life's good or if it was time to retire that after uh, it's only it, it hasn't even been 24 hours yet since it's, the game it, ended. It has to be temporarily retired. Uh, you know, I've been through this feeling once before after the 06 season. That was the... <laughs> Other just really, really horrible loss. Even the Cundiff Evans loss at New England kind of expected right. to lose the game beforehand. 
It's just not the same. It's, oh. it's that 06 loss. 06 was the Colts, right? That's right, at home. All right. The AFC Championship to play at home very similarly. All right, well, let's get into that in a moment. But first, let's bring Michael in. Michael, how are you doing? Hey, Josh. I'm doing good, Ken. I'm glad to be back with you guys. Um, disappointing circumstances, uh, but, you know, hey, it, it, it is what it is. Uh, these things happen, particularly in the NFL, particularly in the playoffs. So, yeah. Uh, We'll talk about it. Yeah, there, there's Great. only one team that will not be uh, talking about their season ending. And, uh, but I th- also want to be thankful for any of the listeners who are downloading this episode because I know it's always tough and something you don't always want to look back. Uh, and unfortunately, we are going to look back even at the ugly loss. That we are. That we are. Now, Michael, I think people know where you work, but do you want to tell them one more time? Uh, yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at Abukari, that's A-B-U-K-A-R-I, and I've been a part of a uh, a team this year, kind of a team effort, on uh, Russell Street Report doing a um, a series called The Coordinators. Uh, so Cole Jackson, uh, Cole Jackson uh, I only know people's Twitter's names, <laughs> I feel bad about that, at Big Play Receiver and at Yoshi2052. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I'm always... You know, sometimes Josh. transpose those yeah. numbers, Josh. Yeah, but great team of guys to work with. Uh, we've been doing a series all year where we take a look at the run game and then the passing game, and we chart plays and do a bunch of nerdy stuff, football nerdy stuff that uh, that I like to do. So it's been fun. I like I like to do it too. So we're in we're, we're in good company, Michael. <laughs> great to have you back as always. So you're you're uh, one of my favorite guys to talk football with. So I really appreciate you being on. Uh, we promised we'd, we'd spend some extra time on questions this week, Josh. So yep. kind of keep us on, on track as best you can, and we'll uh, we'll spend, I hope, about 20 minutes on questions at the end of the show. Yeah, no problem. want to remind people, thanks for getting the questions in. I see it's a pretty full mailbag, people looking for answers after a loss like this. But it's a long off season as well. And if you have some of these longer questions about what do we do about A and B and C and D and how do they interrelate, it's probably a great question for a film study short. So let's talk about that. Let's get you scheduled as quickly as possible. And, uh, you know, we want to do timely topics in a timely fashion. And uh, if you have a non-timely topic, like a study that you've done bef- and you want to just go over it, that's cool, too. We'll, give, we'll, we'll make time for that appropriately. And I'm looking over all these questions. And we would welcome John Harbaugh on the show anytime this offseason if he wants to address some of these questions as well. That sounds fun. So. Um, all right, Ken. Now, I, before you dig into this game, you did mention the 2006 loss. And mm-hmm. this one last night stings a lot because it's most recent. And I, unfortunately, it made it tough to watch football today because, I mean, I, I don't know what's worse, the way the Ravens lost or the way the uh, Texans lost this afternoon. But it makes me think back about that 2006 because that's the only time you can compare it to is this one worse because of the such high expectations or is 2006 still worse because of all of the off the field stuff with the Colts coming back? You know, that did suck. Losing to the Colts was bad. Um, and, and they were still, you know, a hated ex Baltimore team even then. But I think it was really more about the 2016 being great. And it was in a, in a way the Ravens didn't know what a great team was at the time. Then they had, one of their best defenses ever, but it really probably wasn't as good as the 2000 or maybe even the 2008 defense, you could argue. Uh, And so the fact that they had a quarterback who was almost okay in Steve McNair instead of a quarterback who was terrible 
in terms of Kyle Bowler or Trent Dilfer or, you know, other players before him, or just a pure game manager, if you want to think of it that way. Uh, you know, the Ravens really felt like they had something in 2006. And going into that game, they knew if San Diego lost, they'd be the home team in the in the AFC Championship. Sure enough, San Diego lost, and the Ravens were not hosting it that next week. So very, very bitter, bitter game. A lot of different ways, reasons why that was so bitter. This one matches it, I think, in most ways in terms of expectation. This team just an you know, historically outstanding offensive team that, that blew a huge opportunity to win the Super Bowl when they were heavy favorites to do so. What's your feeling, Michael? Yeah, I, I think, and Josh mentioned this before we actually started recording that, I think the expectations with this team just, you know, were reset, right? Uh, going into the season, yeah, I think people expected that there would be improvement, obviously, uh, from last year, particularly with Lamar to this year. But nobody saw 14-2 and two coming. Nobody saw a 12-game winning streak coming uh, while beating the best team, some of the best teams in the league. Uh, in the second half of the season and having the number one scoring offense in the league. So I think all of that, uh, particularly the offensive play, is so different, right, than what our experience has been by and large as Ravens fans. And it just it just changed the expectation for everything. And and like you mentioned, uh, Ken, it, it became Super Bowl or bust. You know, it's a, that that was what the expectation was raised to. And so when that didn't happen, and the way in which it didn't happen, which I know we'll talk we'll talk about, um, it just was super super deflating. All right, let's let's go ahead and talk about the game, some Michael. We 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 certainly suffered through an outstanding game by Derrick Henry. Um, I don't think the loss was all on Henry by any stretch of the imagination. Henry had an impact on field position. He had an impact, a big impact on one touchdown drive. But to be honest, his play was kind of a sideshow to the main problem that the Ravens lost this game on some huge high leverage plays. And by the way, looking back at the series, that's been the that's been the modus operandi. We'll get to that in a, in a little bit. But the Ravens, you know, for starters, they blew two fourth and one opportunities where they hadn't blown any the whole year. They had an interception early that that uh, you know ended a long drive, which another thing they had a, a plenty in this game were long drives, and they uh, immediately gave up a touchdown pass after giving up the fourth and one play, and you know it, it goes on and on. They, it, it was just a, a a series of very bad plays. The, the strip sack by Casey, which gave him the other short field, was the other one. So they gave up fields of 45, 35, and 20 yards to give up short touchdowns. Tennessee converted all of those. And then they had one, you know, legitimate drive of their own that was longer. Yeah, you 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 nailed it. I mean, and I was I was actually going to ask you this because even though I've I've watched the game a couple of times now, um, because I've been doing offense and charting offense this year, I haven't really charted defense. Was there a drive that the Titans scored on where they actually received the ball other than a turnover? Like they got it by a kickoff or a punt and, and actually went on a scoring drive? Uh, no, because even the one where they were, they, they got it on downs on the fourth and one at the 19 and then they drove for the touchdown. Right. So yeah. we, with the first drive of the second half, I don't know. It's a, I don't know if you want to consider that a turnover. It kind of is, but they didn't, they didn't kick it off or punt. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it's just when you, when you give 
a team like this or any team, really, uh, once you're in the playoffs, you're talking about the quality of the teams that are there. If you give them short fields, uh, if you don't take care of what you need to in the red zone on third down, those high leverage situations that you just mentioned, it's going to be hard uh, to win uh, a game when you play that way. And I think the thing about Henry, uh, to your point, was, yeah, he ripped off some long runs. Uh Certainly not going to diminish what he did uh, from a yardage standpoint, Um, but he just unlocks everything else in their offense, right? When he's working, when that part of their offense is working, then you get the play action game. Then you get the screen game. Then you get the freaking jump pass. (laughs) Like everything else is unlocked when he gets rolling. So it's not only what he directly does, direct impact in terms of the yards when he's running the ball well, but all these other parts of their game now become more viable because of that. I mean, to be fair on that, and I think it, I think this is fair, there were only about three plays, the remainder of the game, that got unlocked by the fact that Henry was running. The, 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 the bomb for the touchdown, the yep. 12-yard pass in the end zone, I don't know that you can really even say that was unlocked by Henry. I mean, he had to make a great throw on that play to score to the John o. Smith touchdown I'm talking about now. Yeah. And... Uh, the jump pass certainly was Henry driven in terms of, of his impact on that play, no doubt about it. But, but I, you know, their total amount of offense outside Henry was just not that great. They had what, 300 and a few yards and, and he had 190, whatever, or probably 200 when you include his receiving. So I'm, I'm, I'm at a point where I'm, it's not, it, it really wasn't very much else. I mean, they had 80 some yards passing in the game. They're even, you know, they didn't do anything really much outside of the two touchdown passes. So I think Henry was an impact on field position. Field position was a big problem for the Ravens. Henry didn't turn the ball over. That's what that was big, you know, and they they as a team did not turn the ball over. uh, And that led to the bad field position. But the Ravens started with the average field position of their own 20 in this game. Their best field position of the entire game was their own 26. And I want to make sure I'm, I'm, I'm saying this correctly, because this is one of the most obscene jo- drive charts I've ever shown. So I'm going to go right to it. The Ravens had in this game drives of consecutively now. I'm only going to name the long ones. Their first drive was for 44 yards. Their fourth drive, 59 yards. Their fifth drive, 91 yards. Their sixth drive, 58 yards. Their eighth drive, 44. Their ninth, 88 yards. Their tenth, 64 yards. And their 11th, 55 yards. Those eight drives of 44-plus yards netted them 12 freaking points. Hell. 12 freaking points. So, And that was a field position problem is that they're all, you know, they're starting backed up every single time. You know, they had a 80, what was it? The, I'm looking at the wrong chart here. They had a, yeah, 91-yard drive for a field goal. <laughs> they, yeah. had an, they had an 88-yard drive for a touchdown. Well, that's good. You better, at some point, you better get into the end zone with all that. They went 11 of 18 on third down. That wasn't a problem. They went 0 of 4 on fourth down. That was a problem. Yep. You know, But uh, they, they had 530 offensive yards to 300 by Tennessee. It wasn't, wasn't 300 and a few either, 300. So Yeah. Yeah, no, and and that's, you know, you hear John Harbaugh talk about this all the time when he, he uses the phrase winning football. Like, all those yards are great, right? but they only netted you 12 points because you didn't finish uh, in terms of scoring touchdowns and let, let alone field goals, but you didn't score mm-hmm. touchdowns and you turned the ball over on offense. That's and right. in high leverage situations, those situations that you mentioned, but then even if you just look at some of the other ones for Tennessee that didn't necessarily result in a score, but third down conversions, mm-hmm. I mean, again, 
those are those 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 winning football situations that he's talking about that you have to execute. And if you don't, then you know this is this is what can happen. The history of this game is a is a weird one. The history of the Ravens Titans playoff games. I'll say they play four times now. The home team has lost every single time. The Ravens had a team record in this game of 92 offensive snaps. Never done before. They had 91 once before in an overtime game. That was in the 4th and 29 game at San Diego in 2012. The, the previous record in a regulation game was 87, and it got lost to Denver that same year. But 92 team record. In fact, they've only allowed 92 once. That was in an overtime loss to the Rams. Oh, sorry, win over the Rams in 1996. And they twice allowed 91 in a game. But the 92 plays, just a gargantuan number of offensive plays. They they controlled the football. They moved it down the field. It's just it's like Super Bowl three is all over again to Baltimore fans where they get inside the 20. You just wonder what's going to go wrong. Yeah, if you looked at all of those numbers, right, just in a vacuum, the offensive snaps, everything you just mentioned from a yardage standpoint, the drive charts, there's no way. You would if if you didn't know the score and didn't see mm-hmm. the game. There's no way you would think that the Ravens lost this game. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And and they, you know you go back to the 2000 game. The Ravens were outsnapped 81 to 43, 81 to 43, and they won that game on the blocked field goal return and the and the and the Ray Lewis return. So turn and turn about, I guess, is fair uh, fair play. The 2008 game it wasn't quite as bad in terms of snap count. But it was the Titans turning it over three times to the Ravens' none that won them that game in an awfully similar way to this. It was a close game, 13-10, to 10, but that's that was what it was. And then the game at Baltimore in, in 2003 was another one where the Ravens appeared ready to, to, to win that game with the, you know, the league's leading rusher, Jamal Lewis. And uh, he rushed something like 15 times for 29 yards in that game. So that didn't get it done. Mm. Oh. All right, let's continue on. Oh, you're just going to get into a bitch fest here if, I, if I'm not careful about this. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to help. I'm going to try to help you. Okay. Uh, so the, the run defense, uh, What few things that I thought they would try and do to stop the run defense. One is I thought they played more base package when they were in 12 or 21 personnel. And I thought because the Titans have the ability to dictate what package they put on the field and basically force them to play the nickel when they put three receivers on the field, I thought they'd respond to that with the jumbo nickel as opposed to the standard nickel, which had been pretty well abused in recent weeks with Owasso on the field and only two down linemen. So, in fact, they did start in the jumbo nickel, and the jumbo nickel just had its worst game of the year in terms of getting penetrated by those linemen, getting into level two, getting Bynes caught up in the wash or sometimes Fort when he was in there. And the jumbo nickel in this game, I want to make sure I'm I'm, uh, calling this out correctly here, uh, da, 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 da. Let's make sure we get this right here. The Jumbo Nickel, 124 yards on nine running plays against the Jumbo Nickel, 13.8 yards per play. And the 66-yard run is in there. So you say you take that one out. Well, it's still 58 yards on eight runs over seven yards a, a run. So any way you slice it, not effective in terms of stopping the run. Uh, just a very difficult day for a defense that was built to, to, to slow down the run. Yeah, and we know this um, sort of wide zone, outside zone, stretch run, you know, throw whatever term out there you want to describe it. We know how effective that scheme can be, right? Go Mm -hmm. back to the days when Kubiak was here and the Ravens were running it. Once you really get that going, and this is kind of what I was talking about in terms of unlocking the entire offense. So just envision a run to the left, right? So 
the offensive linemen are on their track. The running back is on their track. He kind of takes an angle towards um, the outside leg of the tight end, you know, so you get you get that lateral displacement. Everybody's moving to the left. And so now your linebackers start flowing really fast, right? Your second level, even your third level people start flowing really fast to the left to try to get outside and force that running back to turn back. Well, as I studied the Titans, Henry really likes to cut back. I think it just fits his eye. I think mm-hmm. the cutback lane uh, as opposed to staying front side to the left, in my example, uh, really suits his eye. So then he starts to cut back and he hits a couple of those runs, right? So now what happens? Now the linebackers start to slow play, right? They start to slow down on the backside because they're like, we got to guard against the cutback. Well, now if uh, your people on the on 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 the front line, your your uh, your defensive lineman in that left run example, if they get reached, sealed inside, or kicked out, run to the sideline. Now he's got a crease front side. Your linebackers are now holding backside because they're, they're playing slow guarding against the cutback and there's nobody there and he's out the gate. So yeah. it, it builds upon itself and it gets really difficult to stop because when you try to cut, it's, it's like a hydra. You try to cut off one part of it, another head or two head grows back, right? Because now it's not just those two parts of the run. Now you've got the QB boot keep right out the back mm-hmm. door. We saw that once with Tannehill scrambling for a first down. Now you've got the play action shot. We saw that to Raymond. So it just builds upon itself. And if you can't get them out of it, as we as the Ravens have gotten a lot of teams out of sort of their their game plans, probably going into the game by getting these big leads. If you can't get them out of it, it's very difficult to stop it. Right, I, I agree. And you know that the the notion that the linebacker has to stay a gap behind, uh, in some ways. I won't say it goes out the window, but it's it's harder for them to be disciplined about that. It seems like on the outside zone concept because they 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 are fearing getting outside of the uh, you know the the running back clearing the leftmost defender, the outside most defender. But you know in this game it was mostly it was cutbacks and punctures and movement of our bigs in the middle that really created the big creases. And and it wasn't just that. It was a huge missed tackle by Judon one yard behind the line of scrimmage on the 66-yard run that really really was the problem on that one. Uh, you know, on the 23 and the 27, uh, there were different problems. I've outlined these in the article, so I don't want to go over every single one of these runs in part because, you know, it just doesn't add to the commentary here. But if you really want to look, find out, go back, look at the article. The blocks are laid out in there and you can look at it on Game Pass and follow along and see what I saw. I said, oh yeah, there, there, that's what it went. Uh, but they just very well blocked plays. Saffold, I thought, was a huge key for them at left guard at setting up their run game, whichever direction they went. He, he got to level two effectively. He teed up people. It was just, he, was, he had so many combination blocks in that game, it, it you know, made me ill. And he's been really good all season. I know most Ravens fans probably aren't watching the Titans, you know, earlier in the season. Uh, I only did because I was kind of following Ryan Tannehill. I've always kind of had a soft spot for him. So when he got to start, I started watching the team. And Saffold has been amazing (laughs) all year. Just getting, like you said, getting the level two, uh, you know, first knocking that uh, first defensive lineman into, you know, the adjacent blocker so they could take over and then climbing to the linebacker or a safety, whoever on level two. He's just been really, really good at that. And, and he was again in this game. Yeah. So anyway, that uh, obviously was not what the Ravens wanted in terms of the run game. The, all the nickel base, the defenses were bad. The standard nickel wasn't really effective, either stopping the run or pass. Uh, allowed the big a big pass completion for the touchdown that was their one really long play of the game. Uh, what else do I have to say about, I think we talked a little about Saffold. 
at that. We got the the missed the missed the, the missed tackle by Judon was a big deal. Judon missed three tackles in this game, and at each one of them cost the Ravens a big run or big conversion. The sixty-six yard run by Henry was a first down play, but it but it no it wasn't. It was a third and one. There so it was a conversion. One, yeah. Yeah, there was a third and two by Tannehill where he ran for three yards. Judon missed the tackle at minus one or minus two, so it would, could have held him up short. And then there was the he didn't maintain containment where Peters had the other side on the pass to A.J. Brown that he yep. converted for a nine-yard nine yard play. So really tough day for Judon, one of his worst as a Raven in my opinion. Yeah, and you could you could probably extrapolate that to the team as a whole. Uh, certainly the offense, which I know we're not going to talk about, but even on the defense, um, you know, it it just was like the perfect storm of the the things that they haven't done by and large this year. Unless you go back, you know, to the Cleveland game or the Kansas City game, but after that, really, it stayed away from a bunch of missed tackles, from uh, losing contain, you know, sort of uh, not being disciplined in assignments. It really kind of stayed away from that, but uh, right. kind of all showed up in this game, unfortunately. Yeah, we had a big one early on Tyus Bowser also had a missed tackle on one of the runs. I forget if it was the 23 or the 27, but he took a very circuitous route on the edge. Looked like he had the edge kind of sealed off in a way, and then the run went inside, of course, cut back to the inside, and he had to chase the play down. He was looked like he was, first of all, not as fast as maybe he could be to to, to react to that play, to, to get in pursuit as opposed to just holding his spot. And then he finally got to the play because there, there had was a juke or whatever was necessary, wrapped around, or it seemed like he had him wrapped, and then he slid right off. And, and of course, Henry's off to the races again for 20-some yards. And after that, we didn't see a Bowser in the game again on anything but a passing situation. He only played about three downs the entire game that were on first or second down. Otherwise, he was in there exclusively with their race car package. But I don't. You can't have everybody in the penalty box in one game. But clearly, they didn't really trust Bowser to to do what they needed him to do in this game. No, and uh, you know, Derrick Henry is a very unique body type at the running back position. <laughs> he's a very difficult guy to bring down. I'm not trying to excuse missed tackles in any way, but he's he's a very difficult guy to bring down. And uh, you know, we we did see Bowser again uh, with that near interception. Uh, mm-hmm. on the play to Corey Davis. Uh, really nice play by him, uh, yes. actually, because he's he's in zone coverage and basically has to zone match uh, Davis as he converts his crossing route into a corner route. So now he's running down the field away from Tyus. He's got a linebacker on a wide receiver, and he's able to kind of stay with him and and, and deflect the ball and nearly make an, uh, an interception. So um, unfortunate, you know, that uh, he had that play in the run game and, you know, the just – they knew, I think they knew that the margin was so narrow, the margins were so narrow that they had to have guys who were going to execute um, that set the edge assignment, right? And not not, not that he was freelancing, but, you know, you just needed somebody who you could trust and you knew were going to do it the way that you would coach them to do it. And you, you, you couldn't take chances. You couldn't say, well, let's just leave him in there because, you know, maybe he'll do better the next time. I think they just felt, all of this just felt like, Everybody on the Raven side just felt the the enormity of this moment, the pressure of this moment, and they all sort of succumbed to it. They did. Uh, they used Ward more. Obviously, they liked him more after what happened. I think against San Francisco, uh, that he came in, he really helped them slow down the 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 49ers running game for the last 25 minutes after they'd run pretty freely to the outside during that game, and. They also did use Ferguson some, not as much. So in order of in order of how much on the run snaps that they were in, 
It was Judon, who played most of the snaps in this game, by the way, almost all of them. Uh, then Ward, then Ferguson, who played a lot of pass snaps as well. And, and then Bowser, who played almost no run snaps. So uh, interesting usage of the outside linebackers. But I think it, it kind of underscores the need for the Ravens to go out and get a bigger Sam this offseason. Uh, even if they keep Judon, I think they, they're going to need another edge setter on the other side, if not. But they need another guy they can really trust to set the edge. The Ravens just aren't comfortable allowing their interior linemen and the good size and good, you know, ability to, to, to disrupt in there get wasted by not having good edge centers. Yeah, and it's the it's the cyclical evolution of the game, right? These mm-hmm. these edge players didn't used to be this small in terms of weight, but they got smaller uh, to help defend the pass, right? But now where are we at? Now we're back to these big backs, right? The guys that we used to see maybe in like the uh, 80s and, and, and early 90s. And it's hard for these these smaller, you know, edge players to to hold up now. So it's just it's just that cycle that football goes through. There you go. All right, I'm gonna just gonna jump through some pass rush stuff for a minute here. We don't want to spend too much time on this, but ample time and space on six of sixteen dropbacks, and that's not particularly special by today's standard. It was six of fifteen on Tan Hill's passes, setting aside the the jump pass by uh, by Henry. Uh, that's really not what the Ravens should have been getting given that they rushed five or more on 14 of 16 dropbacks. So they were a blitz team all the year, over 50% slightly, but it's 87.5% in this game against Tannehill. Uh, the overall results against the pass were not bad, but the fact that the Titans won the high leverage plays and had three touchdown passes in just 16 dropbacks tells you all the story you really need to know about it. It's, it's, they won the big plays while losing most of the plays while throwing the ball. Yeah, and it's something that I I kind of paid attention to uh, in the Titans Patriots game when everybody was kind of clowning uh, Tannehill for only having seventy something yards, whatever he had. But again, in that small number of yards was a touchdown pass, was a couple third down conversions. He's been about quality over quantity in the passing game uh, on this hot streak that he's been on. And you know, look, we're not going to make this guy into the second coming of Joe Montana. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm just saying he's been playing at a very efficient level, although the numbers may not be gaudy, uh, like you said, in those high leverage situations. Uh, he's doing what he needs to do uh, in terms of his role as the quarterback to help the team convert. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, all of the things I saw from Tannehill in this game were very positive in terms of game management. But the, the touchdown pass was a real thing of beauty. Yeah. Let's go back to that play for just, a, for just a minute, because there was a problem. Humphrey was trailing the play and Khalif Raymond is very fast. So he's going to outrun Humphrey if it's a straight race. Obviously, even though Humphrey's one of the one of the better, faster cornerbacks in the league, Khalif Raymond is still faster, still I believe. In any case, he took the top off the defense. What made it worse is that Clark had the back end on that play, and Clark could not impose any of his coverage circle onto that. And what that meant is that even with the wind playing tricks, and and I don't know how much this is, was apparent to people watching the game on TV, but if you walk to that game and if you were at that game. You were concerned about the wind on a play-by-play basis, about it being too heavy for the Ravens to get their playoff. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, like it's like, quickly snap this ball so Tucker can make this kick while the wind is a little lighter right now kind of thing. I mean, we're, we're that concerned about the, about the individual uh, plays. But that play, there may or may not have been wind, but I tell you what, Tannehill threw the ball up, and he had a lot of variation from left to right where he could have allowed that ball to drift. 
not necessarily you know the depth part of it, but left to right for the for the receiver to run under that ball even with some wind impacting it. And that was because Clark wasn't back there to impose his coverage circle as well. It was just the underneath of of Humphrey. And that's a good point about the wind because um, I wasn't at the game. I was at home watching it on TV, and I, I really couldn't get a sense for that watching it on TV. So that's that's really interesting um, that it 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 was a factor and more of a factor than it appeared on TV. But you're right about that play. Um, again, it, it kind of goes back, right? So it's play action, number mm-hmm. one. Uh, so so you've got that working for you. Um, you've also got Chuck Clark back playing the deep middle as opposed to Earl Thomas. Hey, Chuck Clark has been great this season. I'm not even going to say good. I'm going to say great just in terms of what he's added to the defense uh, from a knowledge standpoint, from getting everybody lined up. Uh, and even his play, right? What what he mm-hmm. actually does in terms of his play. But I think, you know, if if we're given an honest assessment, deep coverage probably not the stronger part of his game. Okay. So, you know, so you get a sudden change situation where you get the you know the, the 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 defense gets the ball back for the offense. You you line up with heavy personnel. I believe they had three tight ends in the game uh, on that particular formation, and everything looks like run, right? You you sell run. And then you take this play action shot. You get Khalif Raymond, who does a beautiful job attacking uh, Humphrey's blind spot uh, with that sort of fake, uh, fake move to the corner, then back to the post. Sometimes they call that a Dino route, an old West Coast terminology. Um, and and that's what you do, right? That's exactly what you want to do when you've got a corner in that situation. You want to attack that blind spot and then, you know, basically cross over right back inside of them. And they did have a tight end, another vertical route coming from the other side. And I think. You know, Clark sort of had his eyes on that. That might have been enough, you know, to, to capture his eyes and not let him just sprint back, you know, directly over the top uh, of Raymond to be in better position. Maybe. I don't want to make an excuse, but it was just a great situational call by the Titans. Uh, and then and then beautiful execution. Nice ball from Tannehill and a really nice catch uh, by Raymond. Right. All, all like, I mean, in that position, with how far away he was, I think the best he could have done is drag the throwing lane to get a broad, you know, make Tannehill see a broader section of the field as a potential interception risk and potentially, you know, force an overthrow in that situation. But it's just, it's, he had a lot of room left to right in that end zone to maneuver that throw and get Khalif Raymond to run underneath it. It, it just, it, it was too damn easy for, yep. for, uh, for how it was kind of, in a lot of ways, it reminds me of what I've heard occasionally about the Tyler Boyd catch that ended the Ravens season two years ago is that, you know, basically Mosley is supposed to drag the route up the seam and, and is supposed to, you know, provide him with a smaller window so he can't necessarily tell it's open. Well, first of all, he started Mosley in the in the A-gap on the play, so they really disadvantaged him from doing any kind of seam dragging, uh, you know, <laughs> window Absolutely. closing nature. But anyway, it, it, it uh, it's, it's bothersome. And this is one of the cases where he, he, he could see the throw as well as just not, not have to hit it right on the money. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've been really impressed with uh titans oc arthur smith i went back and watched six of their games uh to prep for this game before they actually played it and uh not a name that i think it's talked about a a, a lot i mean i I know he's he's gotten some um some notoriety because of how well they've played as late as of late but he's he's definitely a guy that i would keep an eye on for the future um maybe it's just uh, they're on a hot streak and 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 maybe, you know, he kind of fades. But I, I really like the way that he calls games. I like the feel he shows as a play caller because I actually think that play calling 
at times is a little bit more art than science. I mean, there's certainly a lot of, of numbers and analytics based preparation that goes into it, but actually the sequencing and calling of plays in a game, I think, you know, some guys just have a really good feel for that. And I, and, yeah. and he, and he's shown that during this, this run that they've been on. It's kind of like one big game of rock, paper, scissors, right? When you get right down to it in terms of what works and he's, yeah, he can feel it going on. Uh, you got to outguess that opponent. Okay, we talked a little bit about the pass rush. There was only moderate deception in there. One of the problems with the, with deception is Ravens get into deception when they have the lead, and we're used to seeing that, obviously, in the last 12 games. Not this game. They never had the lead, and they never really had an opportunity to pour it on with a bunch of stunts and blitzes. They did some, but they didn't do a lot to to uh, to really get after him. And uh, and look, at only two uh, multiple multiple deceptive element pass rushes among the 15. Yeah, big part of their game, right, that that you just hit on that they weren't able to get to uh, uh, from a defensive perspective. That's really where uh, they start to crank the heat up on teams when they get that lead and then Wink can sort of just turn uh, all of the different pressure looks loose. Uh, and they just they weren't able to get to that. Right. I was. It's almost like I look at any first down the defense gives up late in the game. It's just an opportunity to get a turnover. Because it's it's just that much fun to to have the Ravens playing playing defense under those situations. It's uh it's definitely hunting. Yeah. Tuck packages a little bit earlier. I want to do a little more. Um, the Ravens one time were faced with a sixth offensive line, and the Titans did try a few different weeks uh, looks, but they brought in that six eight goon. They have Kelly, the uh, offensive tackle, um, and and he. Uh, was used. They brought in a jumbo set against him, so that that's good. By the way, I don't like. I, they've usually responded with the base set to the sixth offensive lineman this year, but this time they just non apologetically ran out of jumbo. It was an early down too, so it wasn't. Might have been second and ten, and they brought out their four defensive lineman. Then immediately uh, Williams took him down for a four yard loss. One of the really good penetrations against Henry all time. Uh, all game to get that. The other four, three plays they had it were late against 22 personnel, and they added only four total yards there. So zero net yards on four jumbo snaps. I can say that was the one defense that really worked for the Ravens. <laughs> Most of the others did not. Yeah, I was looking at at your notes, uh, and I'm like, well, outside of that jumbo package, things really did not go very well in all the other packages, uh, unfortunately. No, they, they, they certainly didn't. So I, the base package, I'm just going to give the, the, the information here fairly quickly. The base package, four passes for 56, including two TDs. That didn't work out. 15 runs for 70. Alone, it doesn't really, it's not that good. It's just good compared to how bad the nickel was at stopping the run in this game. <laughs> and then we talked a little bit about the jumbo nickel. It's 13.8 yards per carry, 11.6 yards per play overall, including three passes. The standard nickel, they played with Bynes and Owasso in the game. That had some problems with penalties as well. So Owasso had a, had a big unnecessary roughness penalty there after a conversion to give him some extra yardage on a, on a, on a drive. Uh, nine plays for 15 yards, though, in the standard nickel overall. They were successful against the pass with that, and they were just okay against the run with five for 22 uh, in the standard nickel. So, you know, at least they had a couple defenses, which kind of slowed down Henry. 4.4, 4.7 yards per carry in the absence of other elements of offense is not going to win you a football game. So no. you can at least, you know, you can start with that. And, uh, and you know, this was a game where the standard nickel certainly outplayed the jumbo nickel in terms of, of how successful they were and what they were able to do with it. The dime defense, I want to talk about this for just a second. Now, they usually make more use of the dime defense. The Ravens, in fact, have played approximately equal dime and base all year, such that their number of 
Um, uh, actually, I was going to say diamond nickel for much most of the year. They played much more time than base. Uh, so such that their average number of defensive backs per snap had been up there towards five and a half. It's not there anymore after this game in particular. But they played six of the standard race car dime snaps on third down. So we've been over this before. Say it one more time. On those, they have one defensive lineman. They have four outside linebackers on the field to try and get the best possible pass rush. They take off both inside linebackers, and they put in six defensive backs. Uh, that includes Brandon Carr as well as Jimmy Smith in the in the uh, in that in that race car dime. It's almost like the standard dime now, but it's not. Um, those plays went fine. So they they uh, they did a good job with four drive ending plays. They did give up the twelve yard touchdown in that dime package, and they gave up a conversion, the nine-yard conversion, where Judon kind of missed the containment as well on that play. And given how well the first play, the first touchdown, which is a great play by John o. Smith to come down with that ball, high concentration catch. The second play is a mistake by Judon for it to be for it to be a conversion. So I would say just overall that dime played very well in terms of what you could have expected to get out of the scheme you put on the field. Yeah, and I, I, I wanted to ask you, because you, you had one interesting note where they played it um, in like a goal line situation. Uh, is that, is that right? That's yeah, that's right. It's just absurd. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it was the strangest thing I've ever seen, but they converted into it. So let me go to my, my, I don't have my chart right in front of me, but they, they, they shifted into the dime because the Titans put a third receiver on the field on third and goal from the one. So they're playing a standard 11 personnel package. If you're anywhere else on the field against the Tennessee Titans, you play jumbo nickel there most of the time, or you make at least a choice between the jumbo and the standard nickel to try and get a heavier unit on the field, either with two inside linebackers or a third down lineman, one or the other. Okay. Or because you're on the goal line, Hey, this is a a different notion. Maybe you play a jumbo package or at least a base package, one of your larger two to get extra beef on the field and take it out of your, your back end because you don't need as many high quality cover guys to cover a very short patch of grass that was available to the Titans to, to throw to. Yeah, that's unusual. I didn't, they must have seen something maybe in, in film study or something that was going on in game. I, Cause I don't know why else you would, you would, it could, you would could it be possible that. they called the wrong thing on the sideline and they just ran the wrong personnel in. Cause you think they called timeout. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's definitely a possibility because yeah. that, uh, that's about the only thing that kind of, that kind of makes sense there uh, as to why they would do that. Cause you're right. You don't, I, I mean, look, I'll take my chances, you know, in that mm-hmm. situation. Right. And, and, and say, okay, let's, let's see if Ryan Tannehill can, can beat us, you know, with a pass down here, but we're going to, we're going to make sure that it's not the run. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I agree. And, and if, if they, let's say they put 10 personnel on the field, so they put a running back in, they just have the five offensive line and the quarterback and four wide receivers. You're not, you don't see how they line up, but it's four wide receivers. And, you know, they've got some bigger receivers as it is both yeah. Brown and Davis are bigger guys who can throw a block certifiably. Yeah. All right. And, you know, I don't, I wouldn't think you'd want to take that chance anyways. I, it does it makes absolutely zero sense. So basically they had Carr in the game instead of a linebacker, uh, or instead of a defensive lineman, they could have even played a heavier set there. But just I can't come up with a reason for it. The last time they were in the dime at the at the two yard line was after Singletary's thirty eight yard run at Buffalo. They had Chuck Clark stand in the backfield so that the ball would not be snapped and there would be a a neutral zone infraction call mm-hmm. before the snap to prevent it from occurring. Yeah, yeah. Right. And 
it just it boggles the mind that this is the defense that came up. Anyway, that was the option touchdown. Yeah, I was going to ask you if that was the I, I remembered. I was like, yeah, I think that's the option play. Yeah, and and it's it you know option play. How do you stop that with that smaller personnel group as it is? It's it's a it's a hard play to stop anyway if you have to follow the big guy on you know who's you're threatening to pitch it to, and then yeah, you have Tannehill. Yeah. yeah, and it was a, there was a really nice job by their left guard Nate Davis on that play because. Uh, Earl Thomas had the pitch. He had uh, Henry, the running back. And so Fort is overlapping from inside out as, you know, Tannehill is, is sort of, you know, deter- he's declared that he's going to keep the ball and try to turn it up. And the left guard is inside of the right tackle who's blocking a guy mm-hmm. over him. He sees Fort, bubbles outside of the right tackle in that block that he's engaged in and is able to pick off Fort so that Tannehill can cut uh, inside. I mean, it's only, you know, we're, we're only talking about a yard, but you know, with, no, with how he bubbled into the back, back uh, Tannehill kind of bubbled out a couple of yards. Um, you know, it was, it was just really good recognition by Davis to, to pick Ford up there. Cause I went, when it was developing and I, and I saw Davis was still inside and I didn't see anybody kind of moving outside as, as Fort was overlapping. I was like, okay, well he's going to tackle Tannehill. And then right at the last minute, Davis gets out there and gets him. So is that I, I I saw the play too, and I thought, okay, that's P one on that play, as I would put it on my score sheet, meaning a, a pull block where he's credited with a full block for for knocking Ford off his off his line there. But I'm wondering if if Nate Davis at right guard didn't have the option to pull there, like it's part of the regular plan is okay, this is an option run, and you have an option pull within this option run, and would you give a young offensive lineman that much responsibility to try and figure it out and freelance? Or is that what they live for? Uh, I, it would it would be uh, some pretty ad, advanced stuff, I think, if you did do that. Uh, I'm not saying he can't handle it. Nate Davis may be a very smart guy. I don't, I don't know. Uh, he may he may be you know fully capable of handling that. But just the way that the rest of the line uh, appeared to be blocking that play, it really looked like they wanted to kind of show uh, their traditional sort of zone blocking um, inside, and that he was just reacting. You know, I, I didn't even see it as a pull. I thought he just reacted. Now, it could very, very well have been a pull uh, where he was just, you know, ho- helping uh, Conklin, you know, with that guy inside before he pulled just to make sure that there wasn't any, you know, inside penetration. So it could have very well been a design pull. Um, but just just a, a great job to get out there and get for it and uh, allow Tannehill to, to cut up and get in on that play. And, you know, again, just another another way that this stings when, you know, you're having some of your own concepts beat you. there you go all right so i think that pretty well takes care of packages with that one oddball dime uh let's talk about some individual performances i think we hit on a few of these as we've gone through this but maybe we talk about these add any you like let's do our normal format michael you pick one i'll pick one we'll go in order okay um I am going to add some some different ones. I think I, I think we've got at least one that's the same. Uh, I'm going to start with Jahad Ward. Um, you mentioned him earlier. Uh, did a solid job as an edge setter. Um, actually saw him get a couple of pressures um, on on some of the dropbacks. Not that Tannehill had many of them, but but <laughs> when he did, uh, saw him get a little pressure there because we saw Tannehill have to sort of scramble out of the pocket a couple of times. Was still able to complete passes, but they at least got him off his initial spot and uh, and made him move. So uh, I'll I'll give a hat tip to uh, Jahad Ward there. Yeah, good good call. Um, two quarterback hits. I felt bad leaving him out of my own notes, frankly, because I thought he did do a pretty good job of setting the edge. He's not. He's not mentioned all over the run plays. You know, the worst thing you can have is action verbs when I'm listing out a bunch of failed run plays. 
you, you don't <laughs> want that on the defense. So, bad, uh, bad formula. Yes, it's a bad formula. You want to avoid those. So, uh, yeah, they, they, they tended to uh, – uh, he didn't tend to be the immediate immediate issue with those anyway, and uh, and he did have a couple couple nice pressures. It's not like he's not pulling his weight in that respect. It would be interesting to see what they do with Ward next year, uh, whether they try and make him a deal like Fort to keep him around for maybe two years at – um, three to four million dollars, say some affordable number, you know, where he where there may not be another offer that good out there for him, or whether he's you know he may be too good for that. He may may have an offer for four years, twelve million from somebody. Yeah, he's 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 come in and and been an important contributor in that rotation. Um, so yeah, I I'd, I'd definitely like to see them work something out to sort of keep him around. But um, you know, that's the business side of the game, and and you never know. There you go. Okay, uh, we talked about Matt Judon's bad game, so I, I don't think we're going to hit on him anymore. I, I, Earl Thomas was a guy who made some plays in this game, surrendered the touchdown pass on the jump pass. While I, he wasn't quick enough to get to the point that's a very hard play to defend, and there's not a lot of reason to believe Henry is going to throw that ball in that situation. And if you did believe he was going to throw that ball, you better cover Marcus Mariota better than you did because there's no one within 10 yards of Mariota on the right. On that play, he's going crazy, waving for the football. Yeah, I saw that. I, I think that uh, that was Peters' guy, mm-hmm. and I think you could see Peters, Thomas, and Chuck Clark, who who tried to also sort of get back late uh, underneath Corey Davis. Um, but when Henry sells that run, and he only took a few steps, it wasn't like mm-hmm. a you know a, a huge acting job, but it was enough. Right. I always talk about I use the phrase capturing guys eyes. That's all it takes. Right. That's all it takes. And now you've got Corey Davis a step or two behind you. And hey, give 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 credit to um, to Henry, too, for for ball placement, because he puts that ball up high, which allows Corey Davis to go up and high point. And I think if you throw that ball in there lower, even though Earl was a step late, there's a chance he can undercut that ball and, you know, sort of get a diving attempt to knock it away or something like that. If it's at like, you know, midsection level. Uh, but because he put it up over Corey Davis's uh, head, uh, about the only way you're going to have a chance at that is to interfere uh, yeah. with Corey Davis if you can even get there on time, which which Earl wasn't able to. Right. It's uh, it has a lot in common with drop back zipper concepts where they throw high between the uprights, uh, and also just three step drops like we saw Flacco use to Bolden frequently in the 2012 playoff run, just going directly over top to the back of the end zone, trusting Bolden to go get the football. And, you know, big physical receiver in both cases with the with the ability to high point that football. But, uh, you know, it's it's hard to it's hard to be angry about it. I, I, the Mariota thing just was was amusing me more than anything else. But but uh, it would have been a yeah. very annoying thing had he caught the touchdown pass. Yeah, I saw that. It was funny watching him out there flapping his arms like a bird. But uh, again, I mentioned Arthur Smith earlier. Again, that's a that's a great play call, a great situational play call in that moment. So, uh, you know, another another good job there by by Titans OC. Who else you got? Uh, I'm going to go with uh, we just talked about him, so I won't go long at all. Earl Thomas, um, you know, we, we talked about sort of a negative play there, but uh, we we saw the sack. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we saw him, you know, sort of get in on a couple other run stops, uh, and, and also be on, on, you know, the not so good side of a couple run plays too. But I think a guy who, uh, empties the tank, you know, not just in this game, but every game, I think when he's out there, you're going to get everything you, you, uh, 
you can out of Earl Thomas, except when he thinks he might pull a hamstring. So uh, <laughs> other, than that, other than that, you're going to get everything that you can out of Earl. Uh, and, and, you know, he's, he's been a really good addition, I think, this year. I know people might have been looking for more sort of counting stats with him, interceptions and that kind of thing. But he does something uh, sort of similar to Peters, too. That's hard to account for. Right. He takes away throws. He erases mm-hmm. options. And as far as I know, teams may chart that. I, I would imagine teams probably do. But I don't think there's any conventional sort of non-team related or team affiliated service that charts that. And he does it maybe better than any other safety in the league. Yeah, I, I agree. He's he's done the strong safety component of his game has never been at a higher level. I mean, he's obviously he's rushing the passer effectively. He's playing around the line of scrimmage. He's loving it. He's not just playing scared all the time. You, I mean, Peters is a Timmy when it comes to being around the line of scrimmage. And you know, they have this that 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 phrase, by the way, was was there's a there's a bridge that connects the upper and lower peninsula of Michigan. And it's a, some five mile long bridge and you can drive across it. And if you're if you're too scared, a lot of people have a fear of heights going across that bridge. Apparently they have people who drive your car across for you with you in the back seat, huddle down underneath a blanket. And, and, and they're, you're, you're a Timmy if you're in that. <laughs> but anyway, he's a, I, I digress. <laughs> but he's That's a, a good one. I've never heard that story. I'll yeah. keep I'm going to use I'm going to steal that. I'm going to steal Timmy. But uh, but he, but he's he's very selective about contact and and Thomas is not and and he's had a good year sack wise he's a good year as a pass rusher in general and you know in, in a lot of ways he's converted his game to that of a strong safety he's still not the greatest run defender but he's but he's you know what he's done in the pass rush game he's really good instincts on when to get to the line of scrimmage that that are similar to Ed Reed in terms of rushing the passer in terms of timing his arrival at the line of scrimmage well yeah I agree. I also had the, the, the not very nice play, and this was just all instinct by him to take down. I forget who was the receiver on the on the pass right for no yards, but uh, it was a it was a first and ten play. It was right before a twenty seven yard run, so we we forgot all about it and and, and started cursing again a play later. But but it was <laughs> on the on the right sideline, he saw it coming. Owasso didn't. Owasso very late to respond, but fortunately, Owasso was five yards away and. Thomas was 20 yards away, and Thomas got there first easily to, to make the tackle. It was right at the line of scrimmage. I, I, I don't recall who the uh, who the receiver was. It might have been a running back, or it might have been a tight end out on a little uh, uh, route after motion. Yeah, I remember the play. I can't I can't remember who it was either. I want to. I'm wanting to say Pruitt, who I think is 85, but I I'm, I could be wrong. It could have been Tajay Sharp. It could be any of those guys. But I I, I remember the play uh, that you're talking about. And yeah, just all instinct. I mean, just beeline uh to that guy uh and is on top of him right right as the ball arrives mm-hmm. any more any more individual players you want to talk about yeah last one for me and this is one that at least from some of the stuff that i saw on twitter yesterday people probably pretty steadfastly agree with but uh, uh disagree with excuse me uh brandon williams i actually liked how brandon played in that game um, there certainly were some plays uh, where you know you didn't you didn't see the kind of result uh, that you would hope for, but uh, sort of like Ward had some had some pressures uh, on on a couple of dropbacks. Uh, you talked about the big hit on Henry, uh, one tackle for loss. Uh, did some other things in the run game in in, in terms of trying to hold up 
um, you know, uh, a guard or a center who's trying to climb to level two and get a linebacker. That's, that's really what you have to do. I mean, Buffalo mm-hmm. uh, sort of showed the Ravens that uh, when they played that, how effective a strategy that can be to just grab a guy and hold him and don't let him climb uh, to get to your linebackers and keep them clean. Uh, I think uh, Brandon did that a couple of times. I think he did some things that go unnoticed in the run game where – like one example I can remember on a play is he, he I think it was the 23-yard 23, 23 run, actually, where he lines up head up um, over the right guard, over Saffold, but then spikes inside that A-gap between him and the center, right? And so when he does that, the left guard, typically the way that's coached is that he's going to continue on his track, right? He's going to let the center take Brandon now that he's spiked inside. And he's going to continue on his track and look for somebody. But he hesitated just a minute. Right. Saffold hesitated just a minute because you can't. It's just reactionary. You see this guy spike inside. You're like, oh, snap. If I don't stop, that's penetration and maybe a tackle for a loss. And when he does that, it's really a gap exchange. So the linebacker is supposed to overlap now. So now he becomes the B gap player. Right. And he doesn't have anybody there to block him momentarily because Saffold is looking inside at Brandon Williams. And so if that times out and sinks up right that linebacker can get in there clean or at least, you know, very, very lightly touched and has a chance to, to get a tackle for loss. But uh, Peanut uh, gets held up by Saffold. I think Saffold uh, is able to, to kind of see what's going on and, and pick Peanut up pretty quickly. And then Bynes, just what we were talking about earlier, Bynes was slow playing. He mm-hmm. was hanging on the backside because he's guarding against that cutback and he just doesn't have the speed to catch Henry when he's playing it that way. Yeah, I, I it's not that I really dislike what Williams done. He's put in a very disadvantageous position to be facing double team after double team. But the Ravens bigs on the inside got moved too much in this game on the big run plays. And, you know, you're they have to do that job. They have to stay basically positioned, basically absorbing two blocks and not giving ground in order to succeed at their job when you're playing this this heavy, broad front, because you only got one guy behind them. So if you allow a climb to level two, you only got one big behind him anyway. That's Bynes. And you may have another guy like Clark behind him, but he's also susceptible to level two blocks if you get climbing action in there. So Williams has to stand his ground. I thought along the line there was too much movement among those three guys, particularly when it was when it was Williams, Pierce, and Wormley all playing together, as most of, as mostly was the case in the in the jumbo nickel. Yeah, I can't disagree with you. Um, you know, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm always a glass half full kind of guy. I mean, they, they certainly struggled uh, with that at times. But you know, they also, you know, I, I know nobody wants to hear this because, well, he had 180 plus yards, and and you know, look at the score. They lost the game. But uh, you know, I'm looking at individual plays and individual technique, and and sometimes the outcome. Uh, you know, doesn't always line up with how the guy played it, right? Like he, he mm-hmm. may have done what uh, he was supposed to do, and you know, you just didn't get, you didn't get a good outcome. So, I'll, uh, I'll throw a little compliment his way, but yeah, you're right. Overall, uh, they did get moved. <laughs> there's no sugar, there's no sugarcoating that. Yeah, it's just they, they, they took better care of the football. They made, you know, they kicked it when they needed to. When they weren't going to make a first down, the Ravens, it's not like they, they had a lot of choice in the matter. The two late ones that were longer, they had to go for it. The two early ones that were fourth and one, meaning, well, one of them was actually, I think, at the beginning of the, it was, it was the beginning of the third quarter. Yeah. You know, they, there was no, there was no messing around with, with kicking the field goal at those points. It would have been a terrible loss of, loss of expected points to do so. Yeah. But, uh, you know, they, they failed in their, in their big high leverage plays and, Believe me, the losing team in every in this series completely understands how that deal works in terms of 
it repeating itself. Tell you what, let's take some let's take some mailbag questions. I know we got a pretty full bag. Josh, how are we doing there? All right. Yeah, let's get to the mailbag. You can get your questions in using the hashtag film study mailbag because uh, even though it's the last Ravens game, the mailbag's not going to close. I know we're going to look back at this game at least one more episode, so you've got plenty of time to get in your questions as well as continuing all off season. Uh, first one up from Daniel. How does yesterday's quiet game impact Judon signing? I, I wouldn't put a lot of stock in the single game outcome. It obviously was a quite a bad game. It's just one additional data point to add to a number of good ones, though. And he certainly had a very good season. I, you know, basically, you know, as bad as his game was in this game, the fact that Tyus Bowser, they don't seem to trust him, seems to tell me they really are going to have a hard time just letting Matt Judon walk. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, I, it, it's a body of work situation for me. Yes, this was a big game, and uh, as, as the, uh, the person said, he had a quiet game in a big game, and, and you hate to see that, but um, you got to judge the entire body of work, which I think has been good, and uh, for the other point you made, too, just about, you know, sort of who else is there at the position, um, you know, behind him or beside him, uh, it's going to make it tough uh, not to re-sign him. <laughs> Uh, we, you know, who knows, you know, obviously DaCosta did a lot of things during this year, uh, that, that maybe, you know, we didn't see coming or didn't expect or didn't think, uh, the move would work out as well as it did. So maybe he keeps that streak going. The fact that the Ravens have the dollar amount necessary to franchise him kind of tells me that's the most likely place we'll end up Mm -hmm. and that will, that will encourage both sides to come to an agreement on a long-term deal. And hopefully Matthew Down stays a Raven. I'd love to see it. As would I. All right, uh, Mr. Ed's wondering, after early, after the early sack by Earl Thomas, do you believe that the Titans called two plays in the huddle and went to the check each time Earl Thomas was at the line of scrimmage? Wow, that's a great question. I, uh, I was not looking for it, so I don't think I can answer it. What do you, what do you think, Michael? Did you notice anything like that? It's it's certainly possible. Uh, I wasn't looking for it on the first watch, but I saw this question, and so I was looking for it on the second watch. And I can't say that I saw Tannehill. You know, sometimes you can't always tell, but you know, usually there's some kind of hand signal or gesture or something uh, that appears that they're checking they're checking the play, and and that did happen uh, sometimes when Earl was up, and then Earl would back off, or you know, kind of maybe he was fainting the whole time. Um, but that wouldn't surprise me because I mean, we, we, you can go back to Peyton Manning, right? He would talk about that having two plays, uh, that he could sort of choose which one he wanted to do at the line of scrimmage. I've heard a similar thing for Brady, a similar thing for Breeze. I think we even heard it last year, uh, with golf, right? He'd have two, and then, um, you know, uh, he'd get the headset communication after, uh, they, after McVay could look at the defense and he'd kind of tell him which one he thought he should play. So, uh, he should pick. So I, it wouldn't surprise me even, uh, if, if he had that, could it be game plan specific? I guess really is what, what the question really is, was it game plan specific for Earl and what Earl was doing or even an in-game adjustment based on what Earl was doing? Um, good question. I'll, I'll definitely, you know, I'm, I'm like you, I watch these games a bunch of times. So I'll, I'll probably be paying even closer attention to it the next time I watch. Yeah. The kind of, kind of place where it, it it would interest me was on the play where it looked like Clark was going to be the deep safety that went for the touchdown to Khalif Raymond. Could they have called that at the line of scrimmage as an immediate change of play? So to do that, you basically say, okay, we're going to put one play in our, in our, uh, you know, our, our packages 
that is basically a play we can call at any time. We're going to call it the first time we see uh, Thomas threaten to be at the line of scrimmage. And he checks out of this. You know, it's just Geronimo, and then everybody changes to the, to the different play. And But most importantly, Raymond, you better be listening for this because it's a pass play, and it's coming to you on that on that route. Certainly possible. Certainly possible. It's a good good observation by it. All right. Uh, Jalen is wondering, how do you feel about Marlon's comments? Do you understand what he meant, or do you agree, disagree? And I'm going to try something uh, and see if I can just play the comment right here to help refresh mm-hmm. everyone as well as you. Let's see if this works. I think, honestly, the sad reality of it is, you know, this Ravens team, you know, we've been here two years in a row, and we've lost. So I think, you know, you know, you got to look yourself in the mirror, and I think it's this team right now, his identity is get the playoffs and choke and just, it, it, you know, it is what it is. That's just the, the hard truth. All right, get to the playoffs and choke. Yeah, we heard it. It's a good sound, by the way, there. Uh, I, I, I think he's being self-effacing. I would not take that as a negative knock on the franchise or the players around him. He gave up a touchdown to Raymond in this game. He's bears an equal share of this blame. And I think it's just a, a, a self-effacing comment on the part of a very good player. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I definitely don't think this was a finger pointing or looking to point blame kind of comment. I think that he was probably totally thinking about himself and, and how he played um, in terms of the emotion, uh, obviously. And he, I think he came out today and said, hey, I stand by it. It wasn't just an emotional thing. Um, but, but of course it was an emotional thing, but in reality, and maybe, you know, everybody doesn't care for the particular word, uh, maybe it's a little, it's a little harsh, but it really is the reality. I mean, you know, you, you look at the last two years and, and just, you know, how this has un, unfolded in the playoffs, uh, they've not played well. They've, they've self-destructed by and large in, in those two playoff games. And I, th- I think that's hard to argue. I, I think that's. Maybe the part that some people have a problem with it is that he is probably thinking about his own play, but anybody looking at this would say basically it was the offense that shot off both basically both of the Ravens' feet in this game. They drove the ball down the field, and they didn't take care of the football. They didn't make fourth downs. They lost the high, the high leverage plays. And the only real – there are a couple high leverage plays that the defense lost. The one was the pass to Raymond immediately after the, the change of possession. That was bad, and that was Humphrey specifically, which is a good reason for him to be okay – as the a guy who identifies it as being a choke, as opposed to somebody like Earl Thomas, say, who General by and large played well in the game. Okay. Yeah, I, th- I think he's for me. He's and, and I can see how people could could see it that way. But I, I think if it was a different guy, maybe I'd take it differently. I think he's got enough political capital, at least with me, where yeah. he's not a guy that has a track record of looking the you know point fingers or blame the offense or blame somebody else on the team. Um, just hasn't been how he's carried himself. Um, people change. <laughs> I mean, it could happen, but uh, uh, I, I didn't I didn't have an issue with it. Winning teams almost never do, but I think also Harbaugh teams have been very good about not having players blame other players at any time. And, and you know, you, you occasionally will see some of this accountability showing up on the field. And this year, you know, we've noted that Bozeman and um, Stanley have been talking to each other on the field a few times in a way that is – they obviously did not completely agree on assignments. So let's put it that way. Yep. All right. And clearly that's something that this time next year, if the Ravens are in this position for the playoffs, the conversation is going to be, can they win a playoff game? Yep. Yeah. Um, all right. Dark Kirby is 
think believes that the Ravens starters should have played at least a quarter versus Pittsburgh, that there was three weeks of rust, and that was a huge problem. How much do you think that played into this game? You started off, Michael. I mean, it's it. You know, it's like John Harbaugh said. It's I, I, well, maybe I won't go as as strong. Maybe saying it's unknowable. <laughs> I think he said it was unknowable. It's impossible to determine. Uh, but I but I agree with that sentiment. Uh, and and Russ, it, it's just kind of the self fulfilling thing to me. Like, you know, when you play the way that they played, then yeah, okay, they look rusty, right? It's easy to say that when they play that way. But if they come out and they play well and they win this game. 28 to six or, or whatever the final score was, you know, it's the other way around, then, you know, the, the rest was good, right? It was helpful. So I just think rest is just, that's, it's, it's just got that self-fulfilling quality to it. And it's just really hard uh, for me to point to that because it can, it can go the other way. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's kind of, you're kind of like uh, handicapping the coin flip afterwards, like you're, you're kind of indicating here, but it's also it's not that easy to make that choice because you have to make it before that week 17 game and you have to deactivate the players you're not going to play. Yeah. So you either play them and you play all the plays, but you don't play them for a quarter because you really can't afford to do that because you don't have enough players to to swap out, you know, seven for seven to get your guys off the field after a quarter. So guys play or they don't play. But, you know, the idea that they should play a series yeah, might work for the quarterback. It really doesn't work for any other position. No, and if and even if you were to do that, if you play one of those guys for a series and they get hurt, yep. imagine, imagine. <laughs> You'd be wokerized. Imagine what people would say. All right. Um, all right. What percentage would you give to whether the Ravens were outcoached or just flat out beaten in every area and put it on the players? I think it's a team loss. I mean, I think that that's where I start with it. it. It's a team loss. And when I say it's a team loss, that's players, that's coaches, you know, that's everybody. Um, and it, I think I'll have a better idea when the coaches film comes out. I mean, I, I watch the broadcast angles and there's certainly things you can see because sometimes they show some really good replays uh, from from the broadcast. But they're just a, you can just see so much more from the coaches film. And so I usually try to reserve comment on the, you know, did they get out coach thing until you can really see. Um, sort of how the, the the plays unfolded and what really happened um, from you know a, a broader angle, but you know you, I I did it all day yesterday. I'm giving nothing but credit to the Titans, right? I mean, I'm, I, you can't take anything away from them. They had a plan. They came in. They executed it. They made plays in situations where you have to make plays. You know, we we talked about this whole pod, those high leverage situations, um, and they play better. You know, you just <laughs> I, people hate doing that. I know because it's such a simplistic thing where you can't just say they, they play better. It's got to be something more to it than that. And there he is when you unpack it and really look at individual plays. But, you know, sometimes the other team just plays better. There you go. I, and I basically agree with that. The only thing from a coaching perspective that was really strange to me was the dime defense at the goal line. Yeah. That that bothered me. So that, that's, that would be a coaching thing. If I'm looking through the rest of the things, I think all the decisions were made correctly on when to go for it on fourth down. So I don't blame any of that. I think that the Ravens tried a bunch of things to try and get their handle on the run game and get it stopped. But it was in the end, it was a bunch of missed tackles. It was personnel that was just not as good as the Titans were at doing that. And, and yet, the running game was not what eventually cost them the game. It was missing two fourth on ones where they tried it two different ways. They tried a power quarterback run out of out of pistol and they tried a 
uh, a run from under center. That's a more traditional QB sneak. Neither of them worked. The, the, the line kind of let him down on, on both occasions. Uh, one time it was Bozeman on the, on, the, on the power run. Bozeman did not move over quickly enough to get the pull and seemed to be obstructing the potential lanes where Jackson could have run on that play which was exceptionally bad. The other time, just every single lineman got stood up and the, they wrapped around him like a big sheet of saran wrap and, and suffocated Jackson before he could go anywhere. You know, he, he tried to bounce around inside the bubble, but he, but he, uh, he didn't have anywhere to go. No, we, we, I talked with some people about that too, about the fourth and one specifically. And, you know, there's, there's always the, well, this is the downside of analytics. And I mean, there's a downside to anything in life um, if you're going to take that angle. But, uh, you know, he's trusted them to convert those plays all year. And by and large, they've done it at a really high rate uh, in terms of success. So, um, you know, I, I don't think that whether you like analytics and like numbers, evidence-based reasons for doing things, or you're more of a, oh, I go with my gut, I go with what's going on in, in that game-specific situation, whichever side you come down on um, in, in, in that argument, um, they didn't do anything in terms of how they approached that strategically any different than what they'd done all year. And I don't even know if it was numbers-based. It may have been, it, because Harbaugh has said that he doesn't always listen to oh. the analytics people. And sometimes... Um, you know, it's just a gut call for him. So it may have just been a gut call. He may have just said, hey, if we get in those situations in this game, we're going. I don't care what the numbers say. I think it's fair to say there's not one decision on fourth down in in, in this game that should have been difficult for any coach in the NFL to do exactly what the Ravens did. Fourth and one, fourth and one. They've, you know, with the success rate they've had with Lamar Jackson, hell, with the success rate they had with Joe Flacco, with the fourth (laughs) and one quarterback sneak. It's a a no-brainer. Uh, you know, the, the, the two fourth and a little bit longers were late in the game where there was no other choice. And, and you know, they had to go. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think there was any any one of those four that you could you could legitimately question. And I, I honestly, I really haven't heard that. You know, I've heard execution problems on those plays, but I haven't heard anyone say, boy, that's a problem. The, the one thing I really haven't heard is people blaming the wind as much as it as it seemed to be a factor, because it was really a factor. We didn't talk about this, I don't think. But on the first interception was a high ball to Andrews where he was throwing with the wind. So he had the tailwind on the ball. Ball sails on him a little bit. Andrews then gets a paw on it, tips it up. And the wrong guy is there, Kevin Byard, right behind <laughs> the play, acting like Ed Reed. By the way, just a little note for Tennessee Titans fans out there. Kevin Byard needs to take off that red sleeve and not wear it. It just flags him on the field. I mean, it stood out like a, you know, it's like a red coat on the middle of a battlefield. You know, you, it's everybody knows where you are. And you're, you might as well have a deer with a target mark on himself. I mean, it's just a, it's, it's, you know, find the find the red sleeve and don't throw there. You don't have to find thirty one anymore. So uh, I, 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 to have him get a pick in this game with under those circumstances, exceptionally bad. All right. Well, now that you've flipped it over to the offensive side of the ball, I'm going to open up some of those questions in the mailbag because we got a bunch for that side. Um, first one up is with this performance by the Ravens of uh, this game. Do you think the Ravens will shop Hurst around this off season? Which Hurst? Tight end. Okay. Uh, I'm going to say no. I think it's too valuable to Roman to have the additional tight ends and having the extra extra depth at that position is really critical for him to run his offense in the case that they have injuries. They had an injury to Boyle in this game. They're effectively able to go on without a big drop-off in play in this game. Yeah, I agree. I mean, they've been very fortunate um, with, with injury luck in that particular position group, aside from Andrews, obviously, who's mm-hmm. had some things throughout the year. Um and so I, I like Hayden for for that reason. And also, 
look, I understand. He was a first round pick, right? And so this is going to always follow him. And people are going to look at Mark Andrews and say, well, look at that guy. Look where they picked him and look how he's producing. It just happens. You know, I mean, it's, it's the nature of it sometimes. But uh, to, to say that Hayden isn't an effective player, can't be a good tight end in their offense if he, you know, has to take on a larger role. Um, you know, I'm not willing to say that. I think he can. Um, he's not going to be the same blocker as Nick Boyle. He's not going to be the same receiver as Mark Andrews. He's somewhere in between both of those guys. Yeah, and, and I agree. And I think if you if you look at it now, it's exactly the first round tag that people are following because, you know, it's like we're giving up. We're moving on from a, from a third. Well, Hayden Hurst will be entering his third season next year. Sure, they have a fifth year option. I think on a player like him, they may or may not be really in a position to exercise it. You know, if you're not one of the top players at your position yet, they often don't. And so the question will come up is, what's he really worth in terms of trade value right now? A third? A high fourth? I mean, what's his actual value to some other team that would want to want to trade for him? All right. It's a good question. All right. Uh, Minion Hunter gets in here and uh, about four different questions, all asking the same thing. <laughs> and we could uh, we could go with the classic, uh, if you run the ball, you're, you're more likely to win if you run more than pass. But the real question is, what happened to the run game for the Ravens that they kind of got rid of it so early in the game? You know, there was a tweet. You may have seen this, uh, Ken. We talked about Josh uh, at Yoshi 2052. Um, not not uh, our producer friend here, Josh, uh, where, where he talked about that. And I'm actually trying to find it right now. But as I look for it, I think basically what he said was, and we've we've had this conversation throughout the year, he and I, uh, when because it's been rare when when the pass numbers sort of get out of out of whack uh, in relation to the runs, but 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 it's happened. Um, you have to look at it situationally. So what he did was look at that two minute drive. I think at the end of the second quarter, and I think he said there were like thirteen dropbacks in that. But again, situationally, it's two minutes. You would expect there to be more, you know, passes than runs. Maybe not all passes, but you expect more for sure. And then I think he looked at some things from a point in Q3. I don't remember the timestamp because I, mm-hmm. I couldn't find the, the the tweet. But from that point on where they were down, you know, more than 14 points or, or at least 14. And those were all passes or the majority of them were passes. And he said, if you take those game situation, you know, that kind of kind of drive you towards the pass, if you take those out, then I think he said the run mix was um, it was 18 to 22 uh, or 20. I should say it the other way around. I guess it was 22 passes to 18 runs. Um, which is not bad, right? When you look at it like that, that that doesn't um, seem that out of whack. But when you look at the overall numbers without that context that Josh provides, then it does look terrible. I mean, it's, it's 76%, right? They, they've not been anywhere near that over the course of the year in terms of pass rate. But you really do, I think, have to account um, for that game situation context. And I know there'll be some people say, well, I don't care. You still got to run it. Fair, you know, if that's if that's your opinion. Fair we we Fair don't have to have the argument with those people. I'm just going <laughs> to I'm just going to talk to you about it a little bit. And I'm going to say that the thing that was bothersome in terms of this game, and it is mostly situational that the Ravens could not get away from this, is that they had 20 of their 29 rushes come from Jackson, and many of those were on scrambles. But that's kind of the nature of the four-man pass rush with zone defense is that they're giving you a lot in the passing game. So the best way you can often take advantage of that is to manipulate those zones, let Jackson find a weakness, and the four-man pass rush, and sometimes three, by the way, they rush three a fair amount in this game, is going to create opportunities to run the football for Jackson. 
And it's going to create better opportunities to run the football for Jackson, usually than these uh, zone, uh, sorry, the read options off the edge. Now, you may, you know, you want the balance and you want the probably the lower variance of running read option, but you're going to take a few sacks, obviously, with the other way you look at it. But this is one thing I looked at the end of the season. If you combined Jackson's runs on scrambles with Jackson's yard, yards lost and time sacked for the season, he had 4.6 yards per play on those plays. Think about that for a second. Mm-hmm. So you take all of his he sacked, I think, 23 times for something like 105 yards, and he had about 380 yards scrambling. It may have been 330, but I, I don't have the exact number correct. But between the two, he'd averaged about 4.6. Would be hell of a average for a running back. Yeah. There are a lot of quarterbacks in the league who are in negative territory on that stat. In fact, I would think only a handful would be in positive territory. Exactly. And and if they are, it's probably one yard, 0.7 yards per rush that they're differing, but not much from zero. But to be 4.6 above in that. But anyway, that was that was the only hesitation I have about this is that Jackson really did all of the Ravens running. And I think basically Josh is right when he says that it was situational in most of the time. And the other thing was it was what Tennessee gave the Ravens. So they had to yeah. take it. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. I mean, you have to, I know that's when you look at how this team has played and how much they've run the ball to running backs, uh, as well as, to, as well as with Lamar, um, you know, you want to, you, you want to hang your hat on that. You know, you want to go back to that, but, uh, and this is why I reserve comments sometimes until the coaches film comes out. You have to understand what the defense is giving you. I mean, you can, you can, you know, run into a brick wall if you want, you know, 30 times a game. That's certainly, can. <laughs> but you, you, you just have to take into consideration how the defense is playing and what they're giving you and, and how that factors into what uh, the Ravens ultimately call. Very good. I got one more, Josh, that came in. It came in by direct message to me, so I'm just going to read this one. Uh-huh. This is from Matthew Troy, who's an Australian who listens to the show. And by the way, Matthew, feel for your country and the wildfires there and what's going on. I know that uh, Maureen and I love to travel, and one of the things we love to do is see wildlife. And just some of the things I'm seeing about the koala population and other things that are happening down there are just absolutely beyond tragic. I mean, just you know, seeing some of the video coming out of that uh, is just terrible. But Matthew had the following question. When we're down in games, it seems an awful lot like LJ takes it upon himself to get us out of that situation. And while it can be great, it's in those times, those mistakes you can put on him, like the second interception and the fumble to start to happen. Almost like he's forcing things because it's all on him and his attitude and demeanor changes. How much of that do you reckon is experience, age, a trait he's just as, or something the coaches should be limiting slash calming down, especially through their play calling and distinction and decisions? Yeah, for me, it's interesting. I, I I had this conversation with somebody else too, um, a guy who 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 played um, high school and in, in, in college uh, football, and we talked about how when you have a really talented player, uh, so we're talking about offensive player, uh, you have a really talented player who knows what they're capable of, right? Who knows what they can do uh, in terms of you know affecting the game and 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 playmaking. There's that balance between that part of their game and then when it crosses the line uh over into trying to do too much right to to forcing situations and forcing the game and there's that balance between that that amazing talent that can do all of these great things and you see that right throughout the season and so like on the one hand you're like look this is part of what makes this guy great and part of what got us where we are as a team is by letting that part of his game shine through Mm -hmm. but 
there's also the you know other side of that coin of when does that become pressing and now you're not letting the game come to you and you're you're you know more mistake prone when you do that so it's a delicate balance and i definitely think there's an experience component to it that as the player gains more experience they sort of learn that balance a little bit better um but then to i think the 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 point of the question too that's that's kind of in there is sometimes that's just inherent in somebody's game right <laughs> just that's the way they play uh, in in those pressure situations where uh, they don't strike that balance properly and they go too far the other way. And some people never get out of that. They don't grow out of it. So that's really the question is, you know, is this just an experience thing with Lamar, which is where I am because he's 23 years old. Um, only time will tell if he's on the other side of that, where it's it's an inherent, you know, trait that, you know, he's, he never really outgrows. Only time will tell. He was very good under pressure for the regular season when they needed him to be. Uh, he put away games late when they were close. Uh, Buffalo comes to mind, Cincinnati, Arizona, great throws down the stretch. You know, the dropping the ball in the bucket to Hollywood down the sideline against Arizona in week two. We haven't thought about that one in a while, but it was the throw of the year probably in terms of difficulty. Uh, the way he protected the lead against San Francisco and put us in a position to win with a game-ending drive was just very much put the team on your shoulders. I, I don't have a. I really. I think it'd be out of line, frankly, at this point to say that you know he panicked under the situation and put himself in a position. Well, frankly, the the, the team got behind. Uh, you know, they there was an interception that that was a high ball, and and that was him. There were a couple failed fourth and ones that were not entirely him in terms of being failed. And, you know, I just, I don't think you can, you can slap this, this loss on Jackson, unfortunate fumble in the pocket. And, and unfortunately it's awfully similar to what ended the game against San Diego last year. Uh, people are going to hang on to what they're going to hang on to. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he, you know, he talked about it himself. He just he gets too excited at times. He sees these plays to be made and, you know, uh, Everything sort of speeds up. His processing speeds up. His clock in his head, you know, that clock that QBs have speeds up. Everything speeds up. Uh, and it's it's just a matter of, of that balance. And like you said, for most of the year, we've been on the really plus side of that equation. He couldn't, could, can't really complain about it. So uh, when it shows up, though, on the other side or, or the perception that it shows up on the other side in a game like this, then, you know, it, it becomes something that, you know, some not not saying the questioner is doing this because he's just asking the question, but it's something that some people are going to point to. Uh, early in the game, especially, there were a lot of dropped passes. Do you put that on Lamar, on the win, on good coverage, bad hands? What do you think was the cause of that that kind of stopped the Ravens from being able to get anything going on the, offense? The big, the big drop that mattered, as far as I could tell, was the Andrews drop. That first drive, by the way, was going perfectly down the field. And it was a typical Ravens drive, first down, second down, first down, second down, first down, second down. Never got to third down. And then all of a sudden, I don't remember if it was first down or second down, ball's thrown high, Andrews tips it, fired at his interception, and basically the Titans are off to the races at that point. Yeah, and then I think Hurst had a had a drop one point in there, Roberts had a drop one point in there, maybe even Snead had a drop one point in there. Um, look, you know, I think, and 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 I'm I'm gonna certainly go back with what you said about the win and and factor that more into what I see because. What you could see on some of those replays of those drops where, you know, the ball, there's a couple of them where the ball was like right on them. And there's no excusing that. Right. They just dropped it. Uh, but but there's this concept out there of like micro 
um, accuracy and macro accuracy, right? You can be general, you can be generally accurate, or you can be micro accurate. And there were a couple of throws that were a little bit behind guys where they kind of had to reach behind or, or reach down or whatever. And, you know, maybe the wind was a factor uh, in that. But I think if you were to ask all of those individual guys, the receivers and tight ends, they tell you they got to catch those balls. Yeah, I, they, I, they I agree. In, in fact, that was the ball now I recall that was behind Snead that was a quote-unquote drop. It was very poorly thrown football behind him. But that's that's one more point I want to make about the wind is right in that, is that Jackson was altering his delivery as the game went on to throw a very heavy football. If you think about a, a sinker ball pitcher who kind of throws a lot of with a more 12-6 to 6 motion and he, he was he was was not taking the variety of arm angles that he would typically take in a game to do whatever it takes to get the ball to a receiver. And there, there was problems, obviously, throwing outside the numbers. A lot of usable playing field was taken away there. But that was also an interception out there on the edge, which was on the margin of usable area on the field anymore that Vaccaro had. Mm-hmm. And he, other balls, he was coming in much more of this 12 to 6, very heavy ball. And that that can create, first of all, it can create accuracy problems left or right because you're, you're just not throwing at the most natural position that you would to put the ball on the receiver with room to run, if you want to think of it that way. And that's macro versus micro accuracy, maybe in terms of what we're talking about. But also just being at, being so cognizant of the overthrow that you have to throw this heavy ball because of the wind is also going to cause some balls to come in low. And at least one of those on a, on a short pass to the right, there was pressure on the play, but it loses to Justice Hill where it came in right around ankle high and Hill, Hill wasn't able to collect it. Yeah, I mean, that that's certainly an interesting thing to think about going forward, too, about having to make that adjustment to throw a ball that's able to to penetrate through the wind. Uh, and then how that the domino effect of making that adjustment, how it affects your accuracy and ball placement, and that kind of thing. That's it's interesting. I mean, you know, obviously we saw him make tremendous strides from last year to this mm-hmm. year in terms of just passing. I mean, he obviously did it in a lot of other parts of his game, too, but just as a passer. And so the one thing I think is pretty well established about Lamar is he's going to work at it to get better, right? Whatever the weakness is, he's going to try to fix it. Now, you know, whether it happens or doesn't, time will tell. But I don't think anybody can question the fact that if if that is an, uh, an identified weakness that he sees, that his coaches see, he's going to work at it. I mean, mm-hmm. I think we know that. All right, uh, let's close it with Chris's comment who's, or question who says, are there any bright spots that stood out to you in this game? Personally, I felt Hollywood played his best game as a pro. Yeah, that's that's a great place to start. I agree with that. Yeah, no, beautiful. Look, the one-handed catch was a thing of beauty, right? I mean, an absolute thing of beauty. Uh, and then, you know, uh, you know, another another big catch down the middle with a little, little yak afterwards and uh, a couple other catches, you know, later. So... Um, I know it's the kind of thing that uh, people have wanted to see. And we've seen, you know, he's had these really good games and he's had quiet games and, you know, it's sort of been up and down a little bit at a time. And I, and I know people want to see kind of a more consistent approach. But um, to me, if you look at his overall body of work, considering the injury that he was recovering from coming into the season, I don't know how you could. It's, it's definitely a bright spot. Um, you know, I know they're asking specifically about this game, but. I mean, we're talking about a Ravens wide receiver, right? He <laughs> was drafted in the first round and he's actually played well. And he's not even 100% healthy. He hasn't been 100% healthy all year. And, and, and look at the things that he's done under those circumstances. So uh, definitely a bright spot uh, in this game and, and overall, in my opinion. 
yeah, exciting to get both those guys back, Boykin next year and and Brown, and see what they can do. I'm I'm not. I haven't ruled out the possibility that Boykin can be a number two receiver. And, and I think, you know, honestly, I, we've talked, brought this up on the show occasionally, but he could just do a lot for himself by, by expending his off season on improving his skills as a receiver. Yeah. Just, and you know, different, different development curves for different guys. You know, I, I have people, it's, it, it's hard to resist, right? Making these comparisons. Well, look at Hollywood, look at what he's doing, or look at this other guy and look what he's doing. He's a fourth rounder. Look what he's doing. Um, but every guy is unique, right? About that, Take to look no further than than Josh's favorite guy, Rashad Perriman, right? Last three games of the year in Tampa Bay, ripping the league up. <laughs> ripping it up. So it happens, you know, sometimes just a change of scenery, change in environment, or, um, you know, a quarterback who is not afraid to throw the ball uh, up to anybody in any situation. <laughs> it did kill me that I had to pick up Perriman to win my fantasy football championship. <laughs> And that, and that he helped me out. It, it, it hurt. Um, now, one one last guy, I guess. Well, now we can save that for the offense. Is uh, Unless, Michael, you want to get into this. But Marshall Yonda, lots of comments and stuff coming out now that this could be the end of his career. Uh, how do you look back on him as a Raven? And how do you think he stacks up kind of compared to the NFL? Is he put up enough for a Hall of Fame? Uh, conversation well for me no question I mean I'll I'll try to be brief on this because I know Ken you may you may want to focus more on that in the offensive pod so I'll try to be brief but yeah no question no question in my mind he's a hall of famer um (laughs) one of the best right guards uh guards I mean that's not even limited one of the best guards uh in the game still right now today at this point in his career uh, and a guy who's played, you know, uh, right tackle in a season, <laughs> a guy who played left guard at a really high level and did it because he couldn't use his shoulder. <laughs> he could use his right shoulder. Um, so you can take a look at just those things, which are kind of like, you know, the lore kind of deals. But then just look at his actual play. And Ken knows better than probably anybody as he scored the guy. So you look at his actual play, and I, I think it speaks for itself. Yeah, we should make a combination block on his way to the podium in, in Canton. <laughs> I just, I, I would love to see it. I, 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 he's done so much so well for so long in an era where we've had PFF scoring him. And so the ability to change your mind about who's the best guard in the game can change on a year-to-year and even week-to-week basis. So PFF will put a lot of linemen in the Hall of Fame because there's there's emergence clearly who over time have been extremely great and Yanda's in that group. But it also has allowed perceptions of offensive linemen to change more rapidly than the Pro Bowl selectors, you know, cigar is run down. So it's it's a you know, it's, it's an old time, maybe I'm losing the metaphor there, but you understand what I mean. That their 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 perceptions don't change very often when they've been writing about the game for 30 years. Uh, Tony Grossi isn't going to change his mind all of a sudden on whether Art Modell should make the Hall of Fame or not, for example. <laughs> no, he's not. I can. Well, I think that uh, getting you away from the film for an hour and a half to do this podcast has been good <laughs> for you. You sound like you're doing better now at the end of the episode. Uh, but we're not done over a film study. There is the defensive article up on the website now, and there's more coming this week and more this season. You want to share a little bit about that? Sure. Well, so we've got a, a, a substantial offseason plan ahead of ourselves, but obviously there'll be some grading for this year that will go on, and I'll, I'll produce that in segments. I think positional groupings 
at a time, provide an opportunity for a podcast, an opportunity for some discussion of the thing, then we move on one at a time. Uh, we'll have then, obviously, a vigorous free agency and pre-free agency period where the Ravens have to determine who they're going to sign, who they're going to keep. After that, of course, we start ramping up towards the draft as, as free agency opens and the Ravens make whatever moves they're going to make. Uh, then they have the after the draft and filling in those needs that your team still has. We'll have, of course, you know, reports from OTA and training camp. And, and most importantly, this offseason, I want to focus on film study shorts. So if you have an idea for a program you want to do with me, I'm all ears. Let's do it. If you have a study you want to do and, and, and show on air uh, what you've researched, that's great. I'll be looking around for Internet articles that have elements of this and trying to get guests on the show who want to do exactly that. But I'd love to have some Baltimore area film reviewers who are also interested in doing that as well. All right, great. Uh, Michael, what can we plug for you? Uh, again, you can follow me on Twitter at Abukari, A-B-U-K-A-R-I. And you can check out the coordinator series over on Russell Street Report. There'll probably be an article, uh, two articles, the, the uh, run game and the passing game will probably be both dropping later this week. And um, I think there's some plans to delve into some some draft stuff, some draft content, um, maybe using a similar a similar format. Uh, so you know, as, as Ken just laid out, there's no off season in the NFL, right? It just it just doesn't stop, and uh, we love it. So uh, you know, we don't look at that as a negative. I don't anyway. My my family might, but uh, I look at it as a positive. And uh, you know, it's it's still going to be exciting. I know it's disappointing right now, and um, you know, people need to take whatever time they need to to process that. But um, there's only a handful of NFL games left, right? I mean, we're going to hit the Super Bowl and then that's going to be it, you know, in terms of live games. So, uh, you know, I know it's hard, but appreciate it, man. And appreciate this team. Let me just say that. Appreciate this team because these th that that group of guys, that locker room, you're never going to see them again, you know, mm -hmm. as, as they were constructed. It was a magical season, a historic season, um, amazing on both sides of the ball, really. I mean, obviously, the mm -hmm. offense speaks for itself, but if you look at how the defense transformed mid-season and what they became, even though, you know, it didn't, didn't, didn't go well in this last game, but just what they became over the course of, of you know, those 12 games, that streak, it's amazing, you know? So, you know, you got to appreciate this for what it was and look back on it with a sense of pride. I know I do as a Ravens fan, and um, certainly don't let one game, no matter how big it is, it's a playoff loss, um, take away. Uh, from what they accomplished during that season. Yeah, as great as the 2000 team was, this is this is the greatest Ravens team that there ever was. And I don't think there's really any doubt about that. Uh, the, the 2016 didn't have the offense. The 2018 didn't have quite as good an offense either, even though they had a great offensive line. This is the team that we hung our hats on. It's been a 12-week magical ride of wins leading up to this game. Uh, to get the number one seed, to be able to buy two rounds of playoff tickets with some hope that we'd actually be playing those two games was something pretty cool. And, uh, you know, it's just too bad we missed out on that opportunity. Yep. Uh, I don't think we've ever seen team chemistry like this, so I'm really interested to see how it pours into the offseason and comes into next season. If it, Hopefully it's something that they build on as young as they are. Um, but I do. I want to give a plug for Section 336 because as young as the Ravens are, the Orioles are even younger, and it's now <laughs> baseball season. And uh, the Orioles will not be in the playoffs this year. I can say that. 
but now's the time to to get to know these young guys and fall in love with the team. So when they are in a few years, you can be a little more excited. So now that the uh, Ravens season is coming to a close, check out Section 336 to get ready for baseball season as well. Should get an MILB subscription as well so they can, during the year, watch those minor league teams and players a little bit, get some individual bats. Yeah, I'll be doing that, but I want people to listen to my podcast, and, <laughs> okay. and then they can also watch MLIB. You can direct them. To I will be directing them to that, place. yes. Check out Section 336, though. It's a lot of fun with me and my brother. Uh, Ken, who is on going to break down offense with us? It'll be Sarah tomorrow night. We're only with the A-team for the playoffs, so uh, we appreciate it. We had good people. Coach was scheduled for next week. We're sorry you didn't get to him. We'll make sure we do some off-season grading with him. Yeah, and you should have seen the guys we had lined up for Super Bowl. We had all big names coming in to break down the Super Bowl. (laughs) You're going to have to wait. All right, guys, we will talk soon. Birdland Sports. For fans, by fans. Find more great shows like this at birdlandsports.com. Introducing the Lowe's List for Innovation. While our aisles are filled with innovative products, we've selected our favorites just for you. Like the exclusive Whirlpool washer with industry-first two-in-one removable agitator. We love this washer because you can customize any load. And with other smart features to streamline your laundry routine, this product is a must-have for families. Shop the full Lowe's list of top picks at Lowe's.com. Lowe's, home to any budget, home to any possibility. U.S. only. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.